The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Good morning. Sometimes I forget that's a liturgical response sort of thing. Um, hey, if you weren't here for the announcements, my name is Ben Spivey. I'm the campus minister in Lynchburg, Virginia for RUF, which is uh, our denomination's college ministry. Um, I'm starting my fifth year there now, and we are primarily at Liberty University, as it is the biggest university in town, uh, and have been at the past at several of the other schools in town. Um, please pray for us this semester as we begin to kind of uh, experiment with re-expanding to Randolph College, which is a, a small liberal arts school in Lynchburg. Uh, my wife and I actually live just across the street from it, basically. Um, and if you happen to know anybody who is going to one of the many colleges in Lynchburg, uh, and, and there are actually a surprising number, if you happen to know anybody who's going there, or if you are going there, please let me know, and I would be happy to connect with you or them. And um, buy them lunch and talk with them and uh, have fun. We do plenty of fun stuff and talk about God's Word a lot. Uh, today, we are going to be talking about um, the wonderful good news of Jesus, which is the building block, the, the foundation of our lives. And we're going to be doing that through um, this passage in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 15. We're going to read uh, the whole chapter together. All of it uh, kind of comes in a unity and builds into this final parable that we'll read together that we often call. Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And, he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, please help us to hear your word today. Help us to see your great love for people, uh, for sinners. Help us to believe it, Lord. Give us your spirit to be so bold as to believe it and to trust you, um, to see you as you have revealed yourself in your son Jesus and as you have revealed yourself in his teaching here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so um, before we get into the passage proper uh, to take some kind of 10,000 foot looks at it, I want us to consider briefly kind of a theological context for this passage. I want us to consider who's talking and who he's talking about. Um, when we look at this passage, we, we see Jesus is the one talking. And if we step back for just a moment and we think, okay, well, who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And he's telling a group of people what God is like. We have to think, not only is he talking about himself, he's talking about the, the Father, the, the combined action of God the Father and God the Son. And of course, uh, it's, you know, you could say built into an understanding of the passage. There's no mention of him here. But we know in this parable about searching out lost things and in searching out lost people, the Holy Spirit is the one who does that. I want us to have that uh, in, in the background as we think about this passage. I want us to consider that our God, the, the God of the Christian faith, is quite distinct from other gods. We talk often about being a monotheistic, monotheistic uh, religion, but that's not the, the simple monotheism of some of the world's religions. It's the complex and wonderful monotheism of a Trinitarian God. A God who does not sit back like the other gods of the world religions and say, you come to me. You make your way over here. It's not a God who just calls over from a void 
and tells people what they're doing wrong or tells them that, you know, if you really try, you can make it here because we couldn't. This is Jesus who has come into the world out of his eternal home in heaven, out of his eternal fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit to seek people, to find the lost. He has not stood back. He has entered our world of suffering and death and sin to find us. And so he gives us these several stories telling us exactly what it is that he's done and what he is doing. And really these stories that he's given us, they're not hard to understand. Um, These three stories, they all kind of get across one point that I want us to see today. And I just want us to walk away uh, with, with an impression of this, that God loves people, that he loves sinners. Um, if we have forgotten, by the way, there are no other types of people. There's just sinners. They're redeemed sinners and changed sinners, certainly, but, but sinners. Jesus didn't come into the world to seek anyone else because there was no other type of person to seek. So it's not a complicated passage. Um, we, we don't need to get in, not desperately anyway, to the, the Greek of this or anything like that. Um, not because it's unimportant, but because this, this parable is so impressive. It, it is so clear for us. It's not one-to-one allegory, but it, rather it, it paints a beautiful picture for us of the love of God. Uh, and for its simplicity and for how clear the parable itself actually is, it should be easy to preach, but it's actually really difficult to preach the love of Jesus as it's explained here, as it's shown here. And do you know why? Because it's actually a lot freer and bigger than we tend to think it is. It's actually much greater It's hard to do justice to the love of God. It's hard to think that we really catch a a significant glimpse of it. When we do begin to see it as it is, it, it does begin to change us. It does begin to make us different. It changes our view of God, certainly, and I hope that's what this parable does for us today. Uh, these parables teach us that Jesus searches out sinners, that he has come to search out sinners, right? As we said, he did not stay in his home in heaven. He came seeking the lost. He's not standing back unconcerned about what happens to humans or about what they do. He's not calling across that void. He came. And so all three of these parables have that in common, that there's someone who has lost something very valuable to them, and they've gone and searched for it. So the most important thing for interpreting these parables about a sheep and a coin and finally a human uh, are the, the context and the, the person speaking. Right? And we don't have to go into like a history lesson or something on that, just Jesus is talking, and there are some people sitting around him, namely his disciples and a group of tax collectors and sinners, and then the Pharisees, whom he's addressing. Uh, The Pharisees are grumbling that tax collectors and sinners are with Jesus. And so Jesus is making a, a response to them because they're actually mad that he's doing exactly what he came to do. 
They get mad that he receives sinners and eats with them. They're mad that he would look on people with love and show them mercy because they've misunderstood who God is. They're mad that he receives people like this because uh, when Jesus is receiving them, that's pretty significant. He's not passing them on the street. Uh, He's not shouting to them from some sort of rooftop. He's not sending them letters or something. I don't know what else you could say about this. He's, He's actually welcoming them into fellowship with him. He's eating with them, which is a big deal in that culture. Um, there's a part of me that thinks we're not going to for sake of time, but there's a part of me that, that almost wants to stop sometimes just at the first verse. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Don't you get this beautiful idea that they, they just keep coming? They want to be near Jesus? Sometimes maybe that's odd for us to think about, right? Uh, if we have this um, stiff version of Jesus in our minds, if we have this, I don't want to say proper, maybe, maybe it's hard to say um, what exactly we tend to think of Jesus as, but we have this kind of stern, stiff, um, off-putting version of Jesus in our minds, and we think, he's not really the type of guy people would love to be around. And actually, you know, funny enough, uh, he would make us all very uncomfortable for our sin. He has this amazing way of not hesitating to call out people's sin. And at the same time, he's so inviting that the people that the religious leaders wouldn't go near can't get enough of him. They just keep drawing near. They want to hear him teaching. They want to be with him. And he just keeps receiving them. They keep drawing near and he keeps receiving them. Come on, let's kick it. You guys are going to eat with me. To eat with someone in that culture was like admitting them into a a full relationship, a, a friendship it, it was a big deal. You were associating with them. You know, I grew up with this idea of um, having our name associated with, with somebody else. Um, having my name uh, be smudged by the company that I'm around or having my name uh, honored by those in my community because they see other people that I spend time with or they see my actions or you're, you're thought of as an honorable person. And so your name and even your family name are important, and the Pharisees would not have wanted to hang out with these people because, well, their name would have been like mud after that. Um, in in this culture, uh, we can maybe liken uh, what Jesus is doing here to something in our culture, right? When you are uh, in the world of of dating, uh, getting coffee with somebody one time is going on a date. Having dinner with someone the third time in a week is being together, right? Like you, you're an item at that point. Uh, Jesus is with these people. They're getting dinner a lot. Think about how often you see Jesus with sinners in the Gospels. Who does he spend time with? He spends a lot of time with his disciples because he wants to teach them to be like him. And he talks to the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees quite a bit. And then who else is with him? Sinners, tax collectors, the notorious, the immoral. Jesus is with these people. And by the way, um, as we consider who sinners and tax collectors are in this passage, 
Sinners is often, not exclusively, but often used as like a euphemism or a nice way of saying prostitutes or the sexually immoral more generally. Uh, it's hard to imagine maybe seeing Penny or Andrew or Tobias walking down the street with someone you know to be uh, notorious in your town for one of these reasons and thinking like, oh man, I pray for him, he's doing good work. Our first instinct is usually not that good, is it? That's the Pharisees here. They're saying, not this guy. What is he doing? Right, and then tax collectors, uh, maybe if we were to bring that into modern day, we could almost think of these guys as you know, government-approved loan sharks. They were not liked by the people of Israel. They were considered traitors in many ways. And yet, this is who Jesus spends time with, and these are the people that can't get enough of him. These are the people who keep coming to spend time with him. And the Pharisees see this and they think, there's no way this guy's a prophet. There's no way this guy is a teacher in Israel. Look at who he spends time with. In response, Jesus doesn't yell at them and he doesn't drive them away. He tells them these stories. And in a way, he puts the question to them, well, who did you think God would spend time with when he came to earth? What did you think I would do? You've been waiting on the Messiah all these years. What did, what did you think I was going to do when I came? So he puts the question to them in the parable, if you lost one sheep out of a hundred, wouldn't you look for it? Sheep are very important to shepherds. The shepherd in this parable, he doesn't leave the 99 because he doesn't care for them. He goes searching for the one because his sheep are all that important. He doesn't think to himself, well, I've got enough wool and meat for the winter. It's just one out of a hundred. He goes and searches for it. And the woman who loses her coin, well, what, what would you feel if you lost a tenth of your life savings, maybe? Ten percent's not that big a deal, right? That's still enough for retirement. That's like some pizza and a pair of shoes. You're okay. No, actually, 10% is a big deal to us, isn't it? 10% of her treasure is worth breaking out the lamp and sweeping the house and looking for, and so she searches for it. And both of them, they rejoice when they find what they're looking for because it's valuable to them. But then Jesus builds up, he kind of crescendos into this story about humans. And he's gone from 100 to 10 to just two. Two, and they're far more valuable than coins and sheep. In each of these parables, they kind of lead us um, to this, this parable of these two sons, which teach us about the, the value of people to God, about the great love of God for people. Uh, and so we're going to focus on this third one. It's often called the parable of the prodigal son, uh, and, and for good reason, but I want us to consider that this is actually the parable of two sons. And so we're going to talk about both of those sons today. Um, I think it's important for us to remember as we read this parable, this is not modern day America. This son, when he comes to his father and says, give me my inheritance, he's not saying, dad, can you help me buy a car? Like, I know I'm 25, but just can I get like a little loan or something? Or, right, that's, that's not what's going on. Inheritance. His son comes to him and says, I want what's coming to me when you die. 
I don't love you. I don't want to be here anymore. I'm out. Give me, give me what I want. Give me what's coming to me. See you never. He does not love his father. And he goes off, surprisingly, maybe, the, the father gives him what he asks for. He divides what he's got and he gives him his, he gives his son uh, his inheritance. And the son goes off. And it seems like it's not a very long time before the son goes off to live wildly and prodigally and uh, he, he wastes everything that his father gave him in a short amount of time. And suddenly, and of course this is how it goes, a famine hits the country that he's now living in. And he has nothing to eat, so he goes and he hires himself out to a foreigner, which to a Jew would be a big deal. And he gets sent out into the fields to feed pigs, which for this young man would have just been humiliating. And he's humiliated and he's dirty and he's hungry, and he's probably beginning to realize that he's pretty darn lonely. And the, the passage says, when he came to himself, it's almost like he comes back into his right mind for a moment, right? And he says, even my father's servants are doing a lot better than this. They at least have bread enough to eat. They've got a place to stay. I'm out here with pigs. So he comes to himself. He says, what have, I've been a fool and a scoundrel. I'll just go back and ask to be a servant. Surely my father will make me a servant. He'll have mercy on me. And even here, we get a little view of how different as we read the whole parable and come back to it. This son's view, it's not complete yet. But his view of his father is already better than his older brother's view of his father. So he goes back and he gets almost home, almost, to confess his wrongdoing and who is looking for him but his father. Right, in this, in this third parable, uh, maybe it's notable to you that you say, well, when the shepherd lost his sheep and when the woman lost her coin, of course, they went and looked for that because it was valuable to them. But like, you know, when a family relationship is broken, you just kind of hope things turn out for the best or the father is distant. And that's not what's going on here. That's, that's not what Jesus is trying to tell us. It's not that the looking is absent. It's that this is a more complex story. Jesus understood human nature and relationships very well. And so there's naturally a greater complexity to this parable there, because there's a greater complexity to human relationships. The father did not go into the far country looking for his son, but he sees him a long way off, doesn't he? It gives you the impression that actually he stands on his porch every night and scans the road because he's waiting and hoping and praying. He's been waiting for this. And he kind of throws aside his dignity, as some commentaries will tell you. Like, this was not a thing that an older, wealthier man in Israel would have done. He wouldn't have just taken off and run for his son. Running was not, there weren't runners <laughs> back then. I mean, maybe you ran somewhere because you had to get a job done. But, like, you don't just go on a Sunday jog. Right? So this older man, he has to go out and, and gird up his loins 
He's got his robes and things and he, he sees his son and he takes off running and he opens his arms and he grabs his son and begins kissing him because he is so happy that his son is home. He doesn't wait for him to get there. He doesn't wait for his son's confession to come out even. Right? The son begins to talk. He begins to say what he was saying in his head earlier, right? Isn't it funny that the, the parable in the beginning, it records what the son is thinking he'll go and say to his father. But then when he gets there, his father cuts him off. He doesn't even let him finish confessing. He looks over his shoulder and he says, my son is home. Get out the good wine. Kill the fattened calf. Somebody start up some music. We must celebrate because my son was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. Jesus wants us to see what God's love is like for sinners. He wants us to see that it's big and it's free and it is liberal. It's just overflowing and it is celebratory. The angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. It's a big deal to God. It's a big enough deal that he didn't wait. He didn't yell across a void. He sent his only son into our world of suffering and death to come and look for us. Jesus wants everybody present at this table that he's at, Pharisees, disciples, right? The immoral and tax collectors. He wants them all to see this picture of God. He wants them to see how how prodigal his love is, how excessive it is, how overpouring. Uh, This dad in this parable, he's not just any old dad, right? We're meant to see God in him. We're meant to see what a father was patterned to be. We're meant to see what parents are meant to be. I think for all of us here, there's even some hope in this that even though in our world our relationships are broken with our parents, and for us parents, our relationships are broken with our children, even when they're good, there is something better and there is someone that we are meant to be patterned on who still shows us his love, who overshadows our shortcomings and sins. And so we're meant to see in this wonderful father here who welcomes his son home a little glimpse of God. Uh, Kids, have you seen Finding Nemo? Okay. Um, I'm 32 and it's still one of my favorite movies. And I, I almost cry when I watch it like every time, uh, or when I talk about it, so I'm going to try to keep it together. Um, do you guys remember Nemo is at his first day of school, and he's out at the drop-off? Has, has anybody seen this? The, Nemo is a little fish, a little clownfish with a little fin, right? So he can't swim very well, and it's his first day ever of school. It's like first grade for him, and his manta ray teacher takes him out to the drop-off, which is where their reef drops off into deep water, right? So it's naturally seen as a dangerous place, and his father finds out that that's their first day field trip, and he, 
he freaks out. He just can't understand why first graders would be taken there. And especially his son, who's got a little fin, and he's very worried about him. And so he swims out, and Nemo's like humiliated that his dad shows up. And uh, around the time he does, everyone sees off in the distance a boat floating in the water, which fish don't know much about the human world, so they call it a butt. And um, Nemo's friends keep daring him to swim out farther and touch the butt. And eventually he does. In rebellion against his father, he goes out and, and does exactly what his dad says not to do. And he says, I hate you, Dad. And as soon as he does, he's caught by a scuba diver. And Marlin, Nemo's dad, this really cautious little clownfish, he swims out into deep water immediately. Right, he throws off everything Nemo had just said, he throws off the rebellion, and he chases after his son, and he gets knocked out as soon as he reaches anywhere near the boat. And as soon as he wakes up, he starts looking again. And then he almost gets eaten by sharks, and he keeps looking. And then he almost gets eaten by pelican, and he keeps looking. And he almost gets eaten by seagulls, and he keeps looking. And he gets into a field of jellyfish, and he keeps looking. And no matter what happens, he keeps searching for his son. We're meant to see that there's a father better than Marlon. There's someone who, who really did not hold back in searching for sinners. He did everything it took. He did whatever it took to come and find his people. Jesus didn't wait for us to find heaven or make our way there because we never could have. He gave all expense. He gave all cost to get here, to find us and to bring us to God. Again, look at this. In every story, there is a party for the thing found. In the first two parables, it says that the angels in heaven rejoice when just one sinner repents. It's that important that just when one sinner repents, the angels before God are, are excited about it. Heaven is rejoicing. And then when this son gets home, right, we don't see a father who is like grinning and bearing it through Thanksgiving dinner. He's not with his awkward family like, I love him because I'm related to him, but... Uh, this will all be over in two hours. He's not keeping the terms of a contract. Right? He's, he's not doing that. He's bear-hugging you and yelling back into the house, my boy's home. My daughter is back after all these years. Someone starts some music, pour the good wine, start the feast, cut the turkey. They're home. Nothing has held Jesus back from you. Please don't let anything hold you back from him. If you haven't believed in Jesus, if, if you hesitate from putting your hope in him, from trusting him entirely to be everything you need before God, please know he did not hesitate about you. He came into the world seeking you. He is seeking you right now. His Holy Spirit is calling to you now through his word. He wants you. He wants to welcome you. And when you think, but I don't have anything to offer, remember that he's not asking you to bring anything. He didn't even wait 
This father didn't even wait for his son to confess everything. When you think, but he doesn't want me, remember that actually he's searching for you. He wants you a lot. God's crucified son tells us that. Maybe you dislike the idea of repentance. And we can say more about what repentance is and what it's not, maybe another time. I want to just bring to you this. If, if repentance, if this like idea of repentance seems kind of like dirty to you and it seems, you know, uh, restrictive and wrong or oppressive or something, I just want you to look at what repentance is in this, in this parable. The son who's coming home to his dad, he's already repented. There's a lot more healing to do. There's learning to walk in his father's ways. And in that sense, there's more repenting to be done. But the first act of belief is repentance and the first act of repentance is belief. Please please don't misunderstand what we mean by that when we say repentance. It's coming to God first. First, that's what it is. And as you are near a newly found father, he will begin to take care of the rest. He will begin to change you. Don't let repentance be the thing that keeps you from it. Actually, what you'll find is that it's a joyful, wonderful, beautiful thing. It is a joy to obey the Father who loves you so much. And it's probably a lot different than you think. Even for, for Christians who've been walking for years, sometimes we forget repentance is actually so different than I think, isn't it? It's actually a joyful, confident sort of thing. Um, so let's understand what, what repentance is. Let's understand this picture of it here in this parable. It's not meant to earn us anything. It's not meant to make God love you. It can't do that. God already loves you. He's already welcoming us back as soon as we turn. Uh, remember this last thing. I'll, I'll say these two last things about repentance. The parable doesn't say, it does not say that when the son comes home, the father runs out and he says, son, I'm so glad you're here. If you'll just prove to me that you are now living a responsible life, I will let you back in the house. No, he just runs out and wraps his arms around his son and starts kissing him. He's just glad he's home. Uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle said about this parable, he, talking about God, he is more, far more willing to save sinners than sinners are to be saved. Don't hesitate about God. He hasn't hesitated about you. Um, maybe if we are walking along the road of the Christian life and we are wondering what this means for us, well, actually, like we've kind of already said, it basically means the same thing. <laughs> it means the same thing for us. It teaches us that the love of God is free and liberal and overpouring, as we've said, and that that can be the foundation of our lives. And because of that, our repentance can be joyful, confident, free. It's actually the thing that frees us from the things that holds us. We think of it as the thing that, that captures us and oppresses, but it's actually God's love freeing us to, to live a real life of joy and satisfaction. This wonderful gospel that Jesus is the one who came looking for us and didn't wait for us, this can be the foundation of our lives. 
so that as we are walking in the Christian life and we find ourselves in a place where we just haven't, we can't, we just feel like we can't forgive our spouse and it's been weeks, months, years. We feel like we can't forgive our parents. We feel like we just can't give up this addiction or we don't want to. We get, we get weeks down this path, miles down this road. Remember that when we turn, this is the God who is facing us. The one whose arms are open wide and ready to kiss you and celebrate that you are home. And so remember these words when you find yourself there from the poet Marcus Mumford. It seems that all my bridges have been burned, but you say that's exactly how this grace thing works. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive with every start. Every step of repentance, every step back toward God, every step continuing down the road of repentance, it's met with the embrace of Christ. The first turn, the hundredth turn, it doesn't matter. Jesus is there, ready, willing. He has come seeking you. Sometimes we might think that that turn was me seeking God. No, he's been following along closely all, all the way. There's a little bit more to this, though. There's the other son. Uh, remember, this is a parable of two sons. There is this older son who has stayed at home with his father, who did not ask for his inheritance, who you know, stayed and helped with the family business and everything. And um, it turns out he's actually pretty jealous and without love. His brother has been estranged from the family for who knows how long, and he's mad that his dad is throwing a party. He's mad that his dad never gave him a little goat to go throw a party with his friends. Right, and Jesus isn't exactly veiled in what he's saying here. Right, Remember who's around the table? It's not hard to see that Jesus is now talking about the scribes and Pharisees. And they know this. But what do they, what do they need to see here? Jesus isn't trying to push them away. He's actually trying to invite them into something. He wants them to see the love of God. He wants them to see who God really is as revealed in him. He doesn't scorn them and despise them. He actually invites them into something. And so we're going to look a little bit at the brother, but we're going to keep our attention on the father in this parable as well. The younger brother in this story, he's, he's far from his father in distance and behavior certainly for a time in his heart, which is what leads him to that place. But Jesus wants these people standing around to see that maybe they're close to God, like the older brother. Maybe they've stayed and worked the farm. Maybe they've been near. But they've always been far from God in their hearts. And it's seen by how different they are from their father. See, if the older son were actually anything like his father, he would have been celebrating. He would have run right in. My brother's home? But he is so different from his father, despite having lived under the same roof for a long time. And notice, he's not concerned about like, but dad, you, you told me we were going to go on a camping trip, right? Like, I thought we were going to get like a weekend together or something. He wanted this little goat so that he could go out and have a party with his friends. This wasn't about his family. This wasn't about 
his dad. This wasn't about love for those in his household. This is about him getting to do what he wants. The scribes and Pharisees are upset that Jesus is not acting as holy as they are. But what they have missed in their definition of holiness is what Jesus personifies for us. Mercy, compassion, and love. They are actually the ones who have missed the full demand of God's law, which is love. So we have to ask, are are we far from God in our hearts? It might have manifested itself in either of these ways, running from him or staying close, but really not being like him at all, not having his love in us, not loving other people. But are we far from God in our hearts? Do we do the things that look Christian but have no love for God, have no joy in obedience, have no compassion for others, take no pleasure in his presence or seek him out? The last time you heard of someone converting, did you celebrate? Have you ever really celebrated when someone converted or you heard of somebody's turning to God? Uh, Roe v. Wade just fell in our federal courts, and that is a real blessing to the children of our country, and we can rightly thank God for that. But as we rejoice, instead of triumphing, will we welcome those and invite those who have been a part of the abortion system for so many years? Would we have our arms wide open to a doctor who has committed these acts? or to a couple who have thought this was the answer to their hard times? Would that be a joyous occasion for us? Would you join the Father in celebrating someone who was confessing their abortion and turning to Jesus? Because he wouldn't turn them away. He wouldn't turn you away. What about this? I've said sinners over and over again today because it's in our passage here. We tend to picture people uh, when we hear words, right? And when we're thinking about a story, who do you picture when we say sinners? Did you ever cross your own mind? Do you find in yourself a tendency to try and impress God? Are you concerned about performing for God? Are you hurt when he doesn't recognize all that you do or all that you've done over these many years and when bad things still happen to you and you don't get what you deserve or what you think you deserve? I want us to consider not just what we need to do, not just 10 steps to change or something like that. I want us to look at the Father as he's revealed in this story, I want us to look at the love of Jesus and consider what it is that actually changes our hearts. The father ran to meet his prodigal son. He ran to him. He didn't tell him to prove that he was doing the right things now. He didn't tell him to pay him back. He ran to him. He hugged him. He kissed him. And he said, let's 
Let's throw a party. Let's celebrate that you are home. You might expect the father even to come out and scold the older brother. But actually, what do we find? We find a father who ran and hugged and kissed and celebrated one brother coming out to the other one and saying, son, you've always been with me. Come inside and celebrate with us. I am your father too. I love you very much too. Come in. The love of God is great for both of these brothers. The love of this father is is great for both of these brothers. Even though they both have gone in two different ways, found themselves far from him. And yet he's the same father. He is this wonderful picture to us of the love of God. Seeking out sinners. Inviting us in. Having spared no cost to find us. Giving his own son Jesus to die on the cross for us in a world of misery so that we could be with him so that he would bring his sons and daughters home and these parables right someone is searching for the lost and that's exactly what happens Jesus searched for the lost took him to the cross that is the extent to which he was willing to go and it's more than lighting a lamp it's more than walking through the hills looking for a sheep. It's, it's more than scanning the horizon for his son to come home. He came searching. He went to the cross to search for you, to find us. That is the great love of Jesus, to spare nothing, to welcome us home, to love us, celebrate us. Can you imagine God celebrating us? That's a wonderful idea, isn't it? Let's pray uh, before we worship the Lord with song and partake of the supper. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this parable, these parables. We thank you for the great love of Jesus. We thank you that you come seeking us and that you don't hold back from us or hesitate about us. And we pray that you would, Lord, help us to see your love. Help us, Lord, give us eyes to see it. Give us ears to hear it. Help us to believe it, Lord. It is so great that I think it's hard for us to grasp sometimes and it seems unbelievable that you would love people like us. Help us to believe how good you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.